Let me turn our attention again to John chapter 17. And we are in the early parts of this chapter where Jesus is praying what many commentators and theologians call the real Lord's Prayer. To us, the Lord's Prayer is what Jesus taught his disciples to pray when he said, pray in this way. But here we get a glimpse at the heart of Jesus on the eve of his departure back into glory, where he is praying not only for himself that we looked at last week, he also prays for his disciples that we're going to look at this to today and next week, and then eventually what he prays for those who would believe through these apostles, and we'll look at that in just a couple of weeks. So as a very brief reminder, the primary thing that Jesus prayed for himself is that he would be glorified. We know that the glorification of Jesus is due to him because of who he is, but what Jesus is actually talking about is his glorification through the cross. His prayer is that the Father would be glorified through him as he gave himself as an atonement for sin for mankind, and this is, this is what is going to happen through the cross. God's eternal purposes would be fulfilled in the redemption of sinful men. So it is Jesus' death and burial and resurrection that is going to glorify the Father. It is our commitment to Him as our Lord and Savior that is going to bring glory to the Father. And we'll see a little bit of a glimpse of that in our passage today. But because of the cross... Jesus has the authority to offer eternal life. Nobody else has the authority to offer that. Nobody else can offer an alternative way to the Father. Jesus alone is the way and the truth and the life. And this is His and His alone, the authority, to grant eternal life to those who would believe in Him. Through the completed work of the cross, He is the only one that has the right to do that. It doesn't matter what religious expression, what come-lately Messiah pops up on the scene, what religious expression or dutiful Christian life, nothing will ever grant us the right to eternal life other than our faith in Jesus on the cross. Because of what He has done, because of who He is, He and He alone deserves to be glorified. That's what we looked at last week. And so in this second section of the prayer, it begins in verse 6. It actually will go all the way to verse 19. We're going to pause in the middle of verse 11 today. In this second section, Jesus is going to pray specifically for his disciples. But before he makes the specific requests, he will provide the grounds or the basis for the prayer that he prays for his disciples. So read with me, beginning in John 17, 6, and we're going to go through verse 11, uh, the first half of that verse. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you gave, excuse me, but, but of those whom you have given me, 
for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Now, I'll be very honest with you. There are many, many, many passages of scriptures that outline very, very easily, very, very simply, and very, very effectively. I didn't find this to be one of those passages. There's some duplication of what Jesus says. There's some wording that takes place in the Greek language that is incredibly difficult to translate in a way that resonates with us in the way that we would say, oh, yeah, well, I understand what he's saying. That makes a lot of sense to me. So we're going to work through this, and we're going to look at a single outline point, and that is the basis for his request. And then there are going to be seven examples or expressions of the basis of the request that Jesus makes. So again, in verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So Jesus begins the basis of his prayer on an, an, on an extremely important note, and that is ownership. Jesus makes the prayer on the basis of ownership. We'll see this more fully a little bit later in the passage. But the first thing that we find in this verse is this. They have seen the Father. Jesus declares that He has manifested Himself to these men. Now, we also know that Jesus says, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. And if you have believed in Me, then you have believed in the Father. So what this word manifested means is this. Jesus has revealed the Father to them. Now, we also know that throughout the Old Testament, and what is affirmed in the New Testament, is that no one has ever seen God the Father in the fullness of His glory. They've seen glimpses of it. They've seen hints and traces of it. But they have never seen the fullness of the glory of God. What Jesus says is that I have revealed you to these men. So when Jesus began His ministry, and as He engaged these men on a daily basis for approximately three and a half years, He revealed the Father's name to them. And here, name doesn't refer to a title or a surname, not a function or a position. Now you have to remember that these were Jewish men and they knew what God's name was. What did the Jew call God? They called Him Yahweh. Yahweh was known as the Father God. When Jesus says that I have revealed your name to them, He isn't saying that I have unearthed what was never known about your name, it being Yahweh. What He is saying is, I have revealed your name, and that reflects the whole person of the Father. It includes His character and His nature and His attributes. Now you have to remember these Jewish men who have studied the Old Testament through the vast majority of their lives, they know a lot of things about God. They've never seen God. They've never had a direct encounter with God. And what Jesus says is that I have revealed to them the exact perfection of the nature and the character and the attributes of the Father. This is what is implied when Jesus says that I revealed your name to them. This is also shown to us in Psalm 9, verse 10. And those who know your name 
will put their trust in You. For You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. You know, in our world today, in our lives today, we're not necessarily going to follow someone just because of the name they have. We want to know something about them. Who are you? What do you stand for? What do you represent? What are you like? What can I expect from you? When we know those things about an individual, we know something about the fullness or the completeness of their name because we know something about their character, their nature, and their attributes. This is what Jesus is talking about. So from the very beginning of His ministry, His purpose was to do what the Father told Him to do, to go where the Father told Him to go, and to say what the Father tells Him to say. John makes this exceedingly clear, and this should be familiar to you through our study of John over the last many, many, many months. For example, at John 5.36, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I do testify about me and that the Father has sent me. This is what Jesus has said. I do what the Father tells me. I go where the Father shows me. I say what the Father instructs me to say. We also see this in John 12:49. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. As we talked about this last week, the same Decision is ours to make. We either believe these things to be true or we believe them to be false. Jesus is either telling the truth or He is lying and misleading those who hear Him speak. Jesus would reveal to these men and all others who were witnesses of His ministry the full character and nature of the Father. We read in John 12.45, He who sees Me sees the One who sent me. Throughout the farewell discourse that we looked at previous to the high priestly prayer, John 15, 15, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Jesus wasn't trying to be mysterious. He wasn't giving them a false example of who God was. He gave to them with perfection the exact nature and representation and attribute of God the Father. I didn't cite this verse, but this is why the New Testament readers, and specifically from the Apostle Paul, we hear him say that Jesus is the exact image or the exact representation or likeness of the Father. If you want to know what the Father is like, you study the life of Jesus. If you want to know what the character of the Father is like, then you study the life of Jesus. This is what Jesus is saying, is that I have revealed to these men the full nature and character and all of the attributes that are in you, the Father. The second thing that we learn is, number two, they were given to the Son. The reason Jesus prays for these disciples is because they were given to Him by the Father. Verse 6. Again, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Now, this is not the first time that we have heard Jesus talk about the Father giving people to Him. In John 10, 27-29, 
Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. Excuse me, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is why Jesus says, I am the great shepherd. I am the one who keeps you and protects you, and you were given to me. All of the sheep that are in the sheepfold are given to Jesus by the Father. There is this transfer of ownership that Jesus is talking about, which is incredibly important. Believers are a gift from the Father to the Son. We looked at this way, way back in our study in the book of Ephesians, that a part of Jesus' inheritance is the believers that have been given to Him by the Father. Now, these disciples who were once in the world and who were once of the world, just as all people are before their conversion, have been given to Jesus by the Father. The third thing that we see in this, the reason that Jesus prayed this prayer, is that they belong to the Father. And here is where Jesus is talking about the transfer of ownership from the Father to the Son. Again, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. So before the Father gave them to Jesus, they already belonged to the Father. The question is this. When did they belong to the Father? If the Father has given the disciples to the Son out of the world, then when, in fact, did these men belong to the Father? Well, for them to have belonged to the Father before they were given to Jesus, and before they were given to Jesus, they were pulled out of the world, the implication is that they were not converted prior to Jesus calling them to follow Him, Now remember, they're Jewish in their ancestry, but that does not assure they were true believers. We cannot assume that because they are a part of God's creation, that they belonged to the Father. So if that were so, then all people, saved or not, would belong to the Father. And this is important. This might seem like I'm rambling a little bit, but hang on. Let's go back and look at what John 1.12 says. John 1.12, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. So these disciples belong to the Father. They are given to Jesus, but they were given to Jesus from out of the world. So in my mind, the implication here is consistent with the doctrine of election, that before they were given to Jesus, they belonged to the Father, and eternity passed prior to the conversion. This is the doctrine of election. It tells us that God chooses some out of the world to know Him, yet those that He has chosen still must individually choose to receive Him, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. So ownership by the Father precedes gifting to the Son. This is exactly what Jesus said in John 6.37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. In the book of Ephesians, we read in chapter 1, verse 4, Just as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Through the ministry of the, early, of the apostles in the early church, we see in Acts 13, 47 and 48, For so the Lord has commanded us, and this all caps you see is a quote from the Old Testament, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So there is in play here this whole idea of the doctrine of election that these men belonged to the Father before they were given to the Son and before they were pulled out of the world and they belonged to Him in eternity past. Number four, Jesus prays this prayer because they have kept the Father's Word. This is not some meritorious blessing This is the reality that those who are in Christ are in Christ. It talks about the eternal security of the believer. It talks about the right response of the believer. And Jesus says, I am praying for them because they have kept the Father's Word. Now this does not mean that they have been perfectly obedient to everything that Jesus has revealed to them. Even in this very moment, There are many, many things that they have heard Jesus say that they don't fully understand. That understanding won't come until after the day of Pentecost. So the word keep is generally understood as to obey or to remain in. But Jesus isn't talking about obedience of a specific instruction. He is speaking of remaining or abiding in Him. They have kept the word They believe in the revelation. What does it mean to believe? It means to put all of my trust. It means to put all of my faith. What is the revelation? It is this. It is that the Father has revealed Himself to these men through the life and the ministry of Jesus. When they saw Jesus do what He has done, when they heard Jesus say what He has heard, they came to the unmistakable conclusion that you have been sent from the Father. They believe that Jesus has revealed revealed to them the Father and they have remained, they have kept that revelation. These men possessed a basic belief in the words of Jesus, a basic belief in the words of Jesus, but they had an unwavering and an unshakable faith and the person of Jesus Christ as the revelation of God. Is there a difference? There is a difference. We can believe, we can obey the instructions of Jesus and still question who He is. But when we have this unshakable faith in the person of Christ, it implies that we are remaining in Him. We are keeping and holding fast to the revelation that Jesus has given to us the exact representation of the Father. This revelation is the beginning of the Gospel of John in the prologue in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, who was in the beginning with the Father, came into the world that He created, and He revealed to us the truth about who God is. Now, the fifth thing 
The fifth reason that Jesus prays for the disciples is they have believed in the Son. Verse 7, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. So as Jesus comes to the end of his earthly ministry, he declares the disciples to be true followers. Now you remember, who is missing from this conversation? Who is not a part of the group of the original disciples? It is Judas Iscariot, right? He has left the upper room as they have made their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas is on his way to finalize his act of betrayal with the priests in exchanging Jesus, turning him over for 30 pieces of silver. And so Jesus is praying on behalf of these true disciples and declares them to be true followers. He says they know, they know that everything I have has come from you. To know means to recognize or to perceive. It also implies something a lot more than just an intellectual agreement or an intellectual understanding. It is this depth of belief in my heart of hearts that compels me to remain faithful to the God that you revealed yourself to be. So there's two specific things that they believe that they know about Jesus. Number letter A, they believe in His words. Verse 8a, For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. So his words would include everything that Jesus has said. His public teaching, his private explanation of what he's taught in public and parables that wasn't clear to them. All that he has taught about God, all that he has revealed about the nature and the character and the attributes of God, they have come to believe that these things are true. They didn't understand in great detail all that Jesus taught, but they believed that what He taught was from God Himself. They didn't deliberate on it. They might have said, I don't understand this. What does He mean by that? But they had no doubt about the authenticity or the truthfulness of what Jesus has said to them. Letter B, they believed in His origin. Not only in what He has said, but where he has come from. The second part of verse 8. And they received them, my words, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. The disciples were absolutely convinced that Jesus was sent into the world by the Father. Now the contrast here is the world, and most specifically the Jewish leadership, were not convinced that Jesus was sent into the world by the Father. In fact, they would go so far as to accuse Jesus that he was able to do what he did in his ministry through the empowerment of Satan himself. And do you remember that? So that doesn't make any sense at all. So why would Satan empower Jesus to advance or build the kingdom of God? Well, that's crazy talk. Jesus would never do that. And Satan wouldn't have the ability to empower Jesus to do that anyway. So the disciples are convinced that Jesus was sent into the world by the Father. They are absolutely clear about the mission of Jesus. They're not quite clear on the full purposes of Jesus. In fact, they're not so convinced that he is going to go to the cross. They don't understand that he has to die. But they don't doubt for a minute of the authenticity, the accuracy of what Jesus has said, or the fact that he has been sent to them into the world by the Father. Now, the religious leaders couldn't dispute the reality 
that, of the miracles that Jesus performed, but they did dispute his authority in performing them. That was not so for the disciples because they were confident in the origin of Jesus. In John 6, 66, when Jesus had finished feeding the 5,000 and told the huge group of followers, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part of me. And they began to go away. And he turned to his disciples and say, are you going to leave also? Peter speaks for the group and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. In Matthew 16, 15 and 16, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and spoke for the group. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. The proof that these men believed 100% in the words of Jesus and in the origin of Jesus is verified in the lives that they lived as recorded through the book of Acts, as recorded through the letters that are included in our New Testament, what historians have said about these individuals and the fact that most, all but one of them, died a martyr's death. I'll tell you, you don't die for something that you're not absolutely 100% convinced of. Would you do that? Would you die for something you're not so sure about? Well, these men had no doubt about the truth of what Jesus has said in revealing the Father to them and his divine origin from the Father to reveal the Father to them. Sixth reason that Jesus prays, the basis here, is he prays for them specifically. He prays for them specifically. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So there's a sharp contrast here between the disciples and the world. Jesus is praying for those that have believed me, that have kept your word, that are assured of my divine origin. I pray for them. I don't pray for the world. Jesus is our intercessor. He begins this prayer of intercession here. He continues it in eternity right now as he prays for us, his brothers, his his groom, or excuse me, his bride, for us, the body. So the world represents the unsaved, the unregenerate people who are outside of relationship with God. And it isn't that he isn't concerned for the people of the world, but his focus is on these disciples and in preparing them for the ministry that they are going to have in the world. So his intercessory work as the high priest is focused on his people and not on those outside of relationship with them. So he prays for them because they belong to the Father. Getting back to this ownership, the importance of ownership that Jesus is talking about in this section. Verse 10, And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. All that the Father possesses, the Son possesses with them. Now when Jesus says this, he's offering this up as a basis for the prayer. It's a claim to full deity, and it speaks of the intimate unity that Jesus shares with the Father. John 5.23, So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Speaking of the divine unity that exists between the Father and the Son, the inseparable unity that is there, the Godhead, the Trinity, 
And this is what Jesus is declaring as a part of this prayer. Jesus also states here that he has been glorified in the lives of the disciples. And it's just a very small glorification at this point. The glory is in that they believe in him as the one who has the words of eternal life. But the future glory that is going to come to the Father through these men is going to be lived out on the pages in our New Testament. So their faith in him is being sent by the Father as, you, as the unique messenger of the Father brings him glory, unlike the world which has rejected him and instead brought him dishonor. I was thinking about this in the words, in one, in the words of the song that we uh, were singing just a few moments ago. That Jesus was tried by sinful men. The holy, righteous, spotless Lamb of God on trial by sinful men. The faith of these men have brought glory to Him unlike the world which has brought dishonor. The glory the disciples will bring to Him is going to explode after Pentecost when they are filled with and indwelt by the Holy Spirit and as they begin to live out the apostolic ministry that they have been called to. And in the pages of the book of Acts, it tells us that these men will turn the world upside down. In some way, in a way that you and I will probably never be aware of this side of heaven, our belief in Christ is rooted back in the faithful lives of these men who have brought glory to the Father. The last reason, number seven, the basis of this prayer is because he is about to leave them. All of the farewell discourse was rooted in Jesus' imminent departure and in his preparation of them for their apostolic ministry. So this is where we end in the first half of verse 11. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. So the disciples will have to face the world's temptations and the world's hostility without the help of Jesus' immediate physical presence and protection. For three and a half years, they've lived their lives on a daily basis in his shadow, under his provision, under his protection, under his guidance, and all of that is about to change. Although they are not little children who are going to be orphaned, they are going to feel like orphans because this man, this messenger from God, this one who speaks the words of eternal life, is in an instant gone from them. But the Helper is going to come, and they will learn to love Him and depend upon Him, and He will empower them to serve Him fully, and Jesus prays for them because he is about to leave. You know, it's coincidental to us, but it's not coincidental in the providence of God that we began our worship service in remembering that God surrounds us everywhere we are. Jesus is about to leave them, and as he has talked at length, the Helper is going to come and he's going to be in them. You and I today never need to doubt 
or wonder about the presence of God. He's with us every step of the way. He's interceding on our behalf. Through the indwelling of the Spirit, He's empowering us to live for Him. Jesus prays for these individuals because He's about to leave them. He's praying for them because they belong to the Father. And the same things that He would pray for them, He would pray for us. Because of who we are. We are the children of God. Because we belong to Him. Is that good news for you today? Is it good to know that we have the great high priest interceding on our behalf? I hope that it is. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we're so thankful for the truth of your word. And as we'll look next week at these specific things that Jesus prays for these men, and in the week to come, what he prays for those who will believe through them, we give you thanks that you are not an impersonal force, that you are not an unknowable God, but you have revealed yourself with great clarity and accuracy through the life and the ministry of Jesus. God, I pray that all that you have said to us about yourself through your word would resonate deep in our hearts in such a way that we would be so compelled to give ourselves to you and to live for you that we would have the ability through your power to turn our little corner of the world upside down. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you for allowing us to know these things. We pray that, you would be, that we would be faithful to what you revealed to us, that you would find within us a willingness to serve you everywhere we go and everything that we do so that we, like these men, would bring you glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship him.